Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Dr. Peter Kreeft. I tell my students there's three philosophies of teaching, monologue, dialogue, and trialogue, because there's three voices when you teach. There's you and there's your students, and then what you're talking about. And if you're a philosopher, you're talking usually about other philosophers. So for instance, if I'm teaching Plato, I say, well, philosophy number one would be I'm the expert, so I'll do all the talking, and I'll tell you what Plato said and what he meant, and you just listen and regurgitate it back to me on your exams. That's the primitive philosophy of teaching. That's not very good. Uh, a second is dialogue. Uh, here I am, and here you are. Let's talk about Plato but we don't let Plato talk. Or uh, I talk to Plato and he talks back to me and I expound his books in front of you, but you don't get a chance to say anything. Or maybe I say nothing, but I just say to you, well, talk to each other about Plato. Uh, that's dialogue, two voices. That's a little better, but the best is having three voices. Here I am and here's Plato, we're reading his book, and here are you and we're, we're engaged in a three-part conversation. And that's very exciting because God's a trinity, and trialogue is the most godlike uh, human relationship, at least in, in teaching. Uh, and that's why uh, I like Q&A, because dialogue is at least closer to trialogue than monologue, and that's why I want to keep my monologue short. So what I'll do is simply give you a couple of samples of particular questions about angels that I raise in the book and give you a very brief answer uh, to prime the pump so that you can ask me a lot more. Uh, let's start with, can you prove that there are spirits? Materialists deny that. Can you prove the materialists are wrong? And I think the answer is yes, very easily. Uh, proving is not something that atoms do. Uh, an ism is not a kind of uh, physical structure. Uh, awareness, even of physical things, is not itself a physical thing. The act even of sensing is not an object of sensation. It doesn't have a size or a shape or a color. So even to account for our knowledge of matter, you have to say there is a thing called knowledge, and that isn't made of matter. So materialism almost automatically refutes itself. So if we are not just material creatures, if we have spirit as well as body, and if bodies can exist without spirit, like rocks, then why couldn't spirit exist without bodies, like angels? Well, the next question is, uh, do we become angels as we, when we die? And the answer is no, for the simple reason that God doesn't make mistakes. He made angels, he made human beings. Our souls are the spirits of bodies. Our soul's job, first job, is to give life to the organic body. 
And then it also does spiritual work, knowing and choosing and loving. Uh, and God doesn't ever say, I was wrong. I'm going to rip up my, my earlier work and correct it. He perfects his earlier work. So even when we're in heaven, we're going to have bodies. The resurrection of the body is one of the 12 articles of the Apostles' Creed. It's a, 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 an infallible dogma. It distinguishes Christianity from a, a lot of other religions which believe that the spirit goes to heaven, but the body doesn't. In fact, Christianity is, in that sense, the most material of all religions. Not only did God create matter and declare it good, but he became a material creature. And he continued his incarnation in matter in the Eucharist. So, no, you don't become angels. Uh, and we shouldn't try to be angels in this life. If you go into some bookstores, you'll see two sections. One has the title religion, the other has the title spirituality. That's quite accurate. Spirituality is not religion. Religion is a, a, a binding of human beings and God. The word religion means uh, a binding relationship. Uh, and human beings are body-soul unities. Spirituality, however, is a way of being purely spiritual, which is not necessarily being good, because the most evil thing in all reality is a pure spirit. He's called the devil. On the other hand, all matter is perfectly good and innocent. So spirituality, no. Religion, yes. So you're not going to become spiritual. You're going to become holy. <coughs> Another question is, are angels the same as ghosts? They don't have bodies either. And the answer is no. There's a lot of evidence for the existence of ghosts. Ghosts seem to be human souls that are without their bodies. Their, their bodies have died, and most of them seem not to have realized that they're dead yet, so they keep hanging around their houses. That's not the only kind of ghosts, but that's the most common kind. But they're not angels. They're ex-human beings. Angels never were human beings. Other question, if angels have no bodies, how come people can see them? And there are two answers to that question. Sometimes God gives you a vision of angels in your spirit. You don't see them with your outer senses. And if somebody's sitting next to you, they don't see anything at all, but you do. Sometimes, however, angels can disguise themselves and put on bodies and really move physical things. Uh, there's a, a passage in the New Testament where Jesus apparently appeals to an old Jewish tradition that distinguishes those two different kinds of appearances of angels. It's after the resurrection when he appears in the upper room to his disciples and they're afraid and they say, it's a ghost. And Jesus said, no, I'm not a ghost. I'll prove it to you. Do you have anything to eat? And they give him something to eat and he eats it. Ghosts don't eat. Well, I think this is in the Kabbalah somewhere. It says, if you're visited by an angel and you wonder whether it was a vision or whether the angel really had a body, if he did, of course, it's, it doesn't, didn't come out of a mother's womb. It was given to him by God at that point, temporarily. But if you really want to know, feed the angel some food because angels always respect hospitality. <laughs> and the angel will either eat or seem to eat your food. And then when the angel is gone, see if there's any food missing. <laughs> if so, the angel had a body. If not, it was a vision. So Jesus really had a body.
What's the most fascinating description of angels in literature that you know? Well, I give the prize to two people, C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. In Lewis's space trilogy, starting with Out of the Silent Planet, and then Paralandra, and then That Hideous Strength, we have three novels of spiritual warfare where there are evil human beings manipulated by demons, and the good guys are helped by angels. And the descriptions that he gives of angels there are, to my mind, more convincing than most of them. Uh, I'm not quarreling with the traditional descriptions of angels. They're, they're quite accurate symbolically. For instance, halos symbolize uh, light and truth and sanctity, and wings symbolize speed. But most people, when they actually see angels, don't see wings. That's just a symbol. Uh, so how would these pure spirits appear to our senses? We don't know, but Lewis's description, I think, is on target and very imaginative. My second candidate is Tolkien, not in The Lord of the Rings. As far as I know, there are no angels there. There are elves who are sort of the next step above human beings, but they're not yet pure spirits. Uh, in The Silmarillion, if you like Tolkien, uh, you'll like the prequel to The Lord of the Rings, the creation story in the Silmarillion is very, very beautiful. The book is worth reading just for the first 10 pages. And the creation of angels and how the angels sing the rest of the universe into existence is magnificent poetry. If you have a tin ear for poetry, forget it. Or if you just don't like Tolkien, fine. But uh, that's th those, to my mind, are the two masterpieces. Uh, those people who have actually seen angels, especially saints and mystics and doctors of the church, whom we can trust more than anyone else, uh, they usually don't quite correspond to traditional angel art. They don't say, oh, it was exactly like Raphael's angels. And whenever they're asked, they say, no, it's not like that, but I can't explain it. They say things like, yes, they had colors, but it was a different color than I ever saw before. Or they say, yes, they were full of light, but not ordinary light, because it was far brighter than ordinary light, but it didn't hurt my eyes. And one of the intriguing questions is, were the angels dressed or naked? And they always say, neither. <laughs> now that's intriguing. Even little kids who see angels fairly often. I think uh, before you're 12 years old, uh, it's much more likely that you'll see angels than afterwards. I don't know why that is, but the literature is full of little children of visions of angels. I guess they're relatively more innocent. Uh, they wouldn't likely make up something that sophisticated. They were neither clothed nor naked. But when you ask them the question, that's what they say. They just don't fit our categories. Another question is, are angels involved in politics? <laughs> and the answer is yes, because nations, like families, are human communities. Political parties are not. There are no angels for political parties. But there are angels for nations. That's pretty clear in the Old Testament. Uh, St. Michael the Archangel is the angel especially for Israel, God's chosen people. Uh, the Bible doesn't name America or its angel, but I think we should pray to him to wake up uh, <laughs> and do some stuff. How do angels communicate? With each other and with God and with us? Well, since they're pure spirits, 
uh, it's got to be somebody, something like mental telepathy. God just enlightens them, and then they enlighten each other, and then they enlighten us. But the way God enlightens them is from above. He's infinitely superior to angels. The way they enlighten each other is like the way we enlighten each other. Uh, they're all angels, even though they're in a, a hierarchy. Uh, some of them are wiser than others. That's true of us, too, in a different way. But how they communicate with us is much subtler. Uh, the vast majority of times, angels are, are pouring good thoughts and inspirations into us without our knowing it. They, they like to remain anonymous. They're very humble. They're almost shy. Another question that I don't know the answer to is, are there female angels? Some say yes, some say no. The church has not propounded on that. There are, there are two different traditions, both of them quite respectable. Uh, certainly angels don't have biological bodies. But gender or sexuality is not just biological. It permeates our whole being. Uh, there is such a thing as the feminine mind and the masculine mind. So since angels are pure minds, they certainly could be uh, feminine or masculine. But that's probably a matter of degree. Some of us are more rational, some of us are more intuitive, some of us are more aggressive, some of us are more peacemaking. It's a matter of degree. Uh, I don't know the answer to that question, but I suspect the answer is yes, because since God invented two sexes, whatever is good and perfect in both sexes is present in God. So in that way, God himself is, so to speak, spiritually bisexual. Because there's nothing that, no perfection that a woman has more than a man that's not in God, and there's no perfection that a man has more than a woman that's not in God. So if even God is, so to speak, spiritually hermaphroditic, uh, why not angels? But I don't know. But I do know that women tend to see angels more often than men do. I'm not sure why. Uh, it may have something to do with the fact that uh, the two halves of the brain fit together better in women than in men. <laughs> men tend to analyze things into different categories. Here's the supernatural, here's the natural. Whereas women are more, more womb-like and accepting of the whole picture. So if angels are part of the picture, they can get in more easily. I don't know if that's the right answer or not. There's a lot more stuff that we don't know about angels than the stuff that we do. What about the stories about angel rescues that you hear about a lot nowadays? Well, almost certainly some of them are true and some of them are not. Wherever there's authentic money, there's going to be counterfeit money. And when you read these stories, some of them look like National Enquirer stuff, and you're naturally suspicious. It all depends on who's telling the story. Uh, the best collection of stories that I know of comes from a very good uh, Orthodox believing Catholic lady called Joan Webster Anderson. She's written two or three books about angel encounters, and she doesn't dogmatically certify that they're all true, but she's checked them out and, and they're from trustable people. And I myself have never visually seen an angel, but I've talked to a number of people who have, and some of them seem very commonsensical and very trustable to me. But that doesn't mean you can be expected to be rescued from an angel the next time you jump off a cliff. <laughs> There's a traditional picture of an angel whispering in one ear and a demon whispering in another ear. Is that picture true? I think it is. 
Uh, many of the saints say that at your birth, God assigns you a guardian angel, but he also permits the devil to give you a tempting demon. Uh, and when, when you're tempted, uh, almost always there's a kind of conflict. On the one hand, you see the light and what you should do. On the other hand, somehow the darkness whispers and it's attractive at the same time. So it's like God respects your free will by giving you the deciding vote in the election. You know, the angel casts one vote for you and the devil casts one vote against you and you cast the deciding vote. And that's not just abstract speculation, that's very practical. That means that the very first thing you should do is look at your thoughts. Bring every thought to captive to Christ. Who do you pay attention to? Who do you look at? When April 15th comes around and you're thinking, wow, I could cheat the government of this money and I could go buy that expensive sports car and have a lot of fun. And then you think, well, God doesn't want me to because that's a kind of theft. Uh, which voice are you going to listen to? That's the first thing. Whichever one you listen to, you'll probably follow. So first get your mind in order. All that we are depends on what we think. And we can control our thoughts. We can send our thoughts to the angel or the devil, the light or the darkness. Do people really get possessed by evil spirits? Yes. Are they real? Yes. Are they formidable? Yes. Are we supposed to fear them? The Bible tells us. The devil's like a roaring lion. He wants to eat you up. He goes prowling about the world. Uh, Jesus says to us, don't be afraid of tyrants who can hack your head off your body. Don't be afraid of them. I'll tell you who to be afraid of. Be afraid not of he who can kill your body, but he who can kill your spirit in hell. So we are to fear the devil. Just as we're to fear cancer or, or jumping off a cliff or, or any physical evil. But that fear has to be surrounded by something far greater. Namely, the confidence that God is infinitely stronger than the devil. The devil's not parallel to God at all. He's parallel to St. Michael the Archangel. The, the poor devil can't possibly win. In the book of Revelation, we have a, a symbolic picture of the fight between Christ and the devil. And there are two Greek words that are used for the two combatants in that fight. One is the lamb, Arneon, which is, of course, the lamb of God, Jesus. And the uh, word for the devil is Therion, which is often translated the dragon. It really means the monster. Uh, the Greeks had a great imagination, so they had a lot of mythological beasts and monsters. And this was the worst one of all, the terrifying, enormous, fire-breathing dragon. So now, imagine. Uh, here's the heavyweight championship of the universe, and whoever knocks the other one out wins the whole human race. And it's Christ versus Antichrist. And here's a me wee, meek little lamb versus a great fire-breathing dragon. And you say, wow, that's a fixed fight. You're right, the dragon doesn't stand a chance. <laughs> lamb whoops him. Because the lamb has a secret weapon. What's that weapon? The precious blood. That's the most powerful weapon in the world. Remember that scene in Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ. At the moment that Christ dies, a moan comes up. It seems to come up from the earth. That's the devil. I was tricked. I was tricked. I got him. I got him killed. I thought I won. 
I got the blood flowing from God. I killed God. And that's the way he emptied hell. That's the way he got all my people away. Wow. So, yes, fear him, but he can't win. I'd rather leave 45 minutes for questions than 30, because what I gave you are just some of my questions, but I want to know your questions. So let's start now. Questions, please. Qu questions are very precious. Only, only human beings can ask questions. <laughs> Animals don't do it. God doesn't do it. He questions us, but he knows everything. He doesn't need to ask questions. Yes, Dr. Kreeft. Um, is the spiritual world legalistic? I heard on Catholic radio that our spiritual legal rights can be given to evil spirits, such as people, buildings, objects, family lines, such as playing with black magic, occult, things like that. I don't know that the spiritual world can be characterized by terms like rights, but it certainly can be characterized by terms like freedom. And you do, or you can, give away your freedom to evil spirits. They want to take away your freedom. And one of the ways they do that is they tempt you to be free in the sense of autonomous. They, they, they give you a false sense of freedom. Look, if you succumb to this temptation, you'll have a power that you never had before, and you'll be free to do whatever you want. That's license. That's not liberty. So, yes, they want... What they're trying to do is assimilate you. They're, they're like a spider, and you're a fly, and, and they want to eat you. That's why I think that in hell, it's not so much that, that you're a human being being tortured by some outside force, but your very humanity is, is eaten away forever, which is even worse. I have two very quick questions. One. Just one question. <laughs> that was the rule I forgot. One question. Okay. Um, I know, you know angels have uh, various natures, and your guardian angel, you know, the different choirs. Um, your guardian angel sort of, you know, watches over you, but at the same time adores God. So is that sort of like bilocating, like they have the nature, or they can kind of do both at the same time? Can you speak on that? Well, first of all, each angel has a separate nature. Angels are more distinct personalities than we are. Since we have bodies, we all share the same basic equal human nature. We're like, we're like different copies of a book. And then we have accidental differences, and then we forge our own individual personalities by our free choices. But the first thing that makes us individual is our bodies. We have different bodies. Angels don't. So they don't have that kind of individuality. So their individuality is purely spiritual. So Michael is related to uh, Raphael in the same way that Cat is related to Dog, rather than the same way that Fido is related to Blackie. So the angels are indeed in a hierarchy. And they all have a different nature, though they're all angels, and they're all spiritual. Uh, they're, they're remarkably different and in, in individual. Uh, and any of them can bilocate. Not all of them do. Uh, the highest of the angels simply contemplate God. And it's the lowest of the angels, uh, the guardian angels and probably the archangels, uh, who get involved in human affairs. And they do indeed bilocate. Jesus explicitly says that. He says, uh, when he says, bring the little children to me, because their angels even now, their angels even now, are, are seeing the face of the Father in heaven at the same time as they're guarding the children on earth. So they do bilocate. 
And when a saint like Padre Pio bilocates, God is giving him the power that by nature only an angel has. Um, people have talked before about like angels have revealed their names to them or that um, they've named their angels. And I was kind of wondering how we would go about uh, dealing with the names of angels. Well, there's no one answer to that question. If you believe that an angel really reveals his name to you, uh, there's no harm in calling the angel by that name. In fact, it would be insulting not to. Uh, and if you don't have that experience, which is true of most people, uh, then there's nothing wrong in naming your angel uh, any more than there is anything wrong in naming uh, a pet. Of course, angels are not our pets. We're probably their pets. <laughs> but as long as it's a respectable name, that's fine. It makes them more personal. Dr. Uh, coming in from uh, Michigan, Dan is asking a question which I'm going to just mm, tweak just slightly. Could you elaborate on why angels are determined by their one choice for good or evil? Oh, that's a tough one because that concerns time. Well, when we make a choice, we usually have a divided heart because we're stupid. We don't see everything all at once. And if we were a little wiser and saw a little more clearly, we'd make a different choice. Angels are not like that. They're not split into different parts. They see everything all at once. So it's with their whole intelligence that they make a choice. Look at the difference between a mortal sin and a venial sin. For a mortal sin, three things are required. It must be a serious matter. You must have full consent of the will. And you must have full knowledge. Well, full knowledge for us doesn't necessarily mean full appreciation and full understanding. It means you have to cross a line where you're quite certain that this is a serious sin. Angels have full knowledge in an even deeper sense of the word. They have full appreciation. They have no excuse. And therefore, once they fall, they fall totally. About uh, intercessory prayer or persevering in prayer and the whole nature of spiritual warfare. And if you could just amplify a little bit on anything that you might have to say about that. Well, I have nothing more to say than to remind you of what Jesus says about it. Uh, he deliberately uses an insulting image for God to encourage us to persevere in prayer. He imagines that God is like an unjust judge who won't be moved to give justice to uh, this lady until she bangs on his door till late in the night and bothers him. Uh, I think that's a, a deliberately exaggerated analogy, but he says God loves to be bothered. Uh, the same is true with angels. Angels are not impatient. We, we get impatient because we have bodies. But angels who see things clearly are not impatient. They never get bored. So keep bothering your guardian angel. Dr. Kreff, you had mentioned the masculine and feminine um, mind. What are attributes of the feminine mind? <laughs> well, <laughs> I, will give, I will give a certain answer to that question. It is not masculine. <laughs> Well, let's see. Um, the best way to answer a question like that is by a, a, a concrete story. Uh, two of them, in fact. Story number one. Uh, 
the way God created uh, Adam and Eve is, is this way. He really created Eve first. And he said, are you lonely? And Eve said, uh, yeah. And God said, I got a surprise for you. It's a man. He said, what's a man? God said, oh, you'll fall in love with him. He's tall, dark, and handsome, and he's a, a knight in shining armor, and he'll love you, and he'll be great in bed, and he'll be able to op open stuck doors for you. Uh, wow, that sounds too good to be true, says Eve. Is there a catch? Oh, yeah, there's a catch, says God. He's going to have a big ego. <laughs> oh, well, what are we going to do about that, says Eve? Well, says God, we're all going to have to play this little game and pretend that I created him first. <laughs> The other half of the story <laughs> is that God created Adam first, said, are you lonely? He said, yes, I got a surprise for you. What's that? It's a woman. What's a woman? Oh, a woman is my masterpiece, the most beautiful thing in all creation. You will fall totally in love with her, uh, and she will love you back, and she will serve you, and she will obey you, and she'll never even bitch at you. And Adam said, wow, that sounds too good to be true. Is there a catch? Oh, yeah, it'll cost you something. How much will it cost me, said Adam. Well, that'll cost you an arm and a leg, said God. What can I get for a rib, said Adam. <laughs> Blame God for that joke. He created us two species for the price of one. Uh, Chris, writing in from Wisconsin, asks, Can a person be possessed by an evil spirit as a result of another person's actions rather than simply opening yourself, uh, open, uh, yourself opening the door to an evil spirit? I don't know, but I don't think so. I don't know, but I don't think so. All the cases of demon possession that I know uh, are cases where somebody deliberately did something very foolish like playing with a Ouija board. And uh, a Christian in a state of grace cannot be possessed by an evil spirit against his will. He can be tempted. We're all tempted. He can even be oppressed, which is more serious than being tempted. That's really being bothered. Uh, but I don't think he can be possessed because in possession, you lose your freedom. You lose your free will. You, you become a, a, a necessary slave in, in the service of this evil spirit. That cannot happen to a Christian in a state of grace. Uh, hello, Doctor. Um, now, you did mention about the, um, you mentioned about how spirits were found in the culture of they've appeared in many centuries and whatnot. Mm -hmm. um, so you have the, some of the, some of the, like the greatest ancient cultures like the, um, the Greeks, the Egyptians, the Chinese, and they believed in the, um, the spirits and the higher power and the, and the gods the pagan gods and also the other types of things, and yet they're not exactly true. Um, and they were kind of like taken from nature. So how exactly are we supposed to figure out like if spirits are fact or fiction? Well, uh, you use a touchstone. You judge questionable things by what's unquestionable. And divine revelation is unquestionable because God can't lie. So by using that standard, I think you can see that the spirits and the religions of, of all the peoples are always mixtures of truth and falsehood. God, God whispers to everybody in different ways, uh, in our conscience, uh, in our reason, and even in our imagination. 
So I think it's rare that any of these traditions are totally wrong or totally right. Uh, C.S. Lewis describes the mythologies of the world this way. He says, they are gleams of celestial strength and beauty falling on jungles of filth and imbecility because their origin is more divine than we think, but they're at a greater distance from their origin than we think. Given the great intelligence of the angels, uh, can you explain how it was possible that they would have turned against God? Oh, oh that's a good one. No. <laughs> I, can't, I can't even explain how I can. God says, all right, will you sin this time or will you do my will? And I'll say, gee, that's a tough one, God. I don't know. I've got to figure that one out. Uh, that's, that's the mystery of iniquity. Evil is stupid. And if angels aren't stupid, how come some of them are evil? I guess the passion can overcome the reason. And the passion of pride, the passion to be number one, the resentment that God's number one and you're only number two, was so great that it even overcame Satan's certainty that that was not the way to joy. He didn't care about joy. He cared about himself. Hello, doctor. Uh, my question is about when angels appear during a crisis. Because actually, um, I mean, this is quite personal. I went through depression, and then it really felt like there was an angel on one side and a devil on one side. And the angel is... Well, of course, the devil is saying, do it, do it. I was, I was having some suicidal thoughts. But the angel, there's some, somebody whispering at me and says, remember God. And, and I guess the angel won because of, of that. But then I've, I've, I've seen some TV programs where they were, it was about stories of people recounting experiences with angels where there was a crisis where they cannot explain. There was a stranger that just showed up during a crisis and helped them through and all that kind of stuff. I was trying to follow the program, but it, it disappeared. It was just a very short program. What do you want, what can you say about angels during crisis, temptations, and, and, and these unexpl unexplainable experiences? I don't think any of us can be certain about what happened to anybody else. But I think you can be quite certain that that was an angel, because by their fruits you shall know them. And that angel delivered you. Sometimes angels are invisible. In fact, most of the time they're invisible. But sometimes they come in visible form. And they help you out of, out of physical crises. Don't, don't limit them. God's imagination is greater than yours. So. If you're uncertain as to whether that was an angel or not, give, give the angel credit. If it wasn't an angel, God will say, okay, it wasn't an angel, but thank you for, for thinking of that anyway. Um, you mentioned that guardian angels often work through inspiration and that sort of thing. Well, the Holy Spirit does also. So how do you know which one's talking to you? It's not an either-or, it's a both-and. Any, any angel that doesn't get his inspirations from the Holy Spirit is not an angel but the devil. But God loves to use his subordinate instruments. He's, he's our father, but he's not a helicopter parent. <laughs> and he's the CEO of the universe, but he's not a micromanager. So he exalts his subordinates. He loves to, uh, to use the whole hierarchy. So it's not either or. 
Was that me? Was that my guardian angel? Was that my friend? Was that the Holy Spirit? Was that the divine Logos? Yes, all of the above. So you thank them all. Yeah, yeah. Because grace doesn't substitute for nature. It uses nature. It turns nature on, not off. Especially human nature. God also uses our own free choices. Predestination and free will aren't opposites. They're two sides of the same coin. Because God's sovereignty is so great that he can use even our genuinely free choices to accomplish his purposes. Dr. Kreeft, um there's the oddest passage in Ephesians chapter 3 where the working out of God's plan somehow manifests God's wisdom to the uh, principalities and mm -hmm. powers. I was, I've always been just puzzled about that, and I was wondering if you had anything. Could you give um, us the, can you give us the chapter and verse on that just for the recording and, and so forth? Uh, to read it, or? Is it short enough? Um, the key um, verse is uh, chapter 3, Ephesians 3, verse 10, and it says, um, Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. The angels had no way of knowing, unless God directly told them, how he was going to save the human race. Uh, and since an angel doesn't have a body and doesn't have senses, uh, an angel couldn't possibly predict that God is going to incarnate himself, die for our sins, establish a church, be continually present in the Eucharist. Uh, angels must have been even more shocked at transubstantiation than Protestants are. <laughs> Take a, by the a way, by the way, I've got a story about that. I hear, and if any of you know uh, whether this is true or not, uh, please tell me because it happened in this area. Uh, I've been told from two different sources that when Pope John Paul II was here, uh, he was riding past Mount St. Mary's Seminary in Emmitsburg, Maryland, and he had a, a little bit of extra time. So he said, I want to go in the chapel and pay a visit to the Blessed Sacrament. And they said, you can't do that. It's not on schedule. He says, I'm the Pope. I can do it. <laughs> and they said, well, we'll have to come in with you, and we'll have to send the Secret Service agents in with you because you might be assassinated. He said, that's fine. Well, they had dogs there, too, pointer dogs, because they were afraid that somebody might be hiding in the bushes that they wouldn't see, but the dogs would smell them out, and then he'd point to them, and then the Secret Service agents would go in and get him. Uh, so uh, the CIA agents and their pointer dogs accompanied the Pope down the central aisle uh, of the church, and suddenly the dogs rushed forward. The Secret, agent, Secret Service agents uh, grabbed for their pistols. What's happening? And they stopped right next to the tabernacle and pointed to the tabernacle. And the Pope supposedly made a joke saying, dogs are smarter than Protestants. <laughs> Um, when I was in Ethiopia, I witnessed a couple exorcisms um, going on a missions trip. And um, as a Catholic, I kind of backed away because I had read that, you know, you can't really destroy a demon and just kind of cast out somewhere else or to someone else or to the ground or something. And uh, my Protestant friends, though, went up to the person who was being exorcised and they started praying over them. And uh, after the incident, they kind of had this entitlement that they felt that they had cast out the demon. Um, as opposed to the Protestant ministers. 
Um, so I just wanted to know um, two questions. Where do the demons go when you ex exorcise them? And two, um, is, is it up, is it, are we called to cast out demons, or is, is it, does it, that role belong to certain people? Those are two tough questions. Uh, we have some hints in the Bible as to where they go. Sometimes they go into animals. Uh, you know, the Gadarene demoniac, the demons went into swine. Sometimes they go into nobody and just wait around uh, to come back if they're invited or into somebody else. Jesus says if uh, uh, the spirit goes out of a soul but the Holy Spirit doesn't come in, then the spirit will go back and say, oh, my house is empty. I'll bring seven of my wicked friends and come, come back in. So the point of exorcism is not just negative. It's to make room for God to, to enter positively. Uh, as to the agent of exorcism, I think it's a wholly unfruitful exercise to, to say, did I cast it out? Did you cast it out? Did we cast it out? Who did it? God did it. Give him all the glory. And whether we can do that or not, that's not clear. There are authentic cases of ordinary people uh, praying for deliverance from what seems to be demon possession, and God grants that prayer. But in the Catholic Church, uh, exorcists are appointed to that task, and they have a special power that ordinary people don't have, and they're prepared by the church for that. So it's at least a rather dangerous thing for an ordinary person to undertake an exorcism. And any exorcist will tell you that uh, the devil wants to get at you if you're the exorcist. So you've got to be very humble and very holy, otherwise great damage is going to be done to your soul. So I would not advise anybody to do a private exorcism without church approval. Again, a question coming online from Maria. Is it possible to be in a state of grace but harassed by evil spirits? Yes. In fact, uh, the greater the saints and the deeper the state of grace, the more certainly you will be harassed by evil spirits. So if the evil spirits leave you perfectly alone and you're perfectly at peace and you have no problems at all, <laughs> worry. Good evening, Dr. Cray. Thank you for coming this evening. St. Peter says that we have been made partakers of the divine nature. And as such, the church teaches that we are going to, in some way unknown to us, become partakers of the covenant love of the Trinity. My question is, can angels be partakers of this covenant love of the Trinity? And if they cannot, why not? Wow. <laughs> I am a mere philosopher, not a professional theologian. And I must confess that I really do not know the answer to that question. I suspect. <laughs> I suspect, however, I suspect that the answer is no, because uh, the reason we can be partakers of the very life of the Trinity is the incarnation. Uh, only because we have bodies and can be incorporated into Christ and his body can that happen. Angels do not have bodies. Now, maybe it can happen in another way, but not in the way that, that, that it happens with us. Now, I certainly don't want to say God can't do this in his own way, but uh, we have a privilege that no angel has. We can be literally incorporated into the body of Christ, and we can literally receive the body of Christ into our bodies, and angels are amazed at that privilege. 
Uh, one of the old traditions in the early church fathers, and it's reflected in the Quran too, is that God revealed to the angels what he would do to create mankind, this inferior species, uh, and, and, and love them very deeply. And some of the angels said, you can't do that. That's, that's beneath your dignity. And they rebelled. And those who were humble enough to say, yes, I will serve this inferior species, mankind, uh, they did not rebel. And in the Christianized version, God uh, showed, this is not in the Quran, God showed them the incarnation. And some of the angels said, that's, that's horrible. You would, you would become one of those slimy creatures? I, I, I won't help you. It's beneath my dignity. And that was the motive for the rebellion. That's just a legend, but it, but it fits. It's, it's at least symbolically true. Um, my question is about um, demonic oppression. Um, I just was curious if you could talk a little bit more about that and um, what kinds of activities or sins that we partake in um, open the doors to that kind of thing. I can't draw a clear line between demonic activity and merely human activity when it comes to something like oppression or depression or uh, a, a sort of a squashed soul. I strongly suspect that there is no clear line, that demons have a role in and use our own natural weaknesses against us. Uh, and, and therefore, there's almost always some supernatural dimension to even natural dementia uh, in many ways. So I wouldn't make that an either or. I would say to somebody, let's say, who, who, who feels oppressed, uh, go to a good Christian psychiatrist or psychologist and uh, go to a good priest uh, and, and a saintly friend and ask to be prayed for. It's not an either or, to both and. Good evening. I had just a quick question. My father passed away in 2009, and my mother is living with us right now. And my mother was diagnosed of cancer two years ago, and she was not going to go ahead with chemo. So she made that decision, and then that night, she says that my father, who had passed away in 2009, came to her. And it was a, it, it was a, a, quite an experience for her. She was wide awake when it happened. The question to you is, you had said before that, that that may have been probably an angel as opposed to my, my actual father who, who actually appeared to her. But the question is, what is that interplay between spirits who have passed, people who have died, and angels? Is it possible that those two work together to make that appearance to her? It's possible, but if she identified that as her husband, I think it most likely was her husband whom God allowed to appear. Uh, there's three different kinds of ghosts. Some of them clearly come from heaven with helpful messages of, 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 of goodness and cheer. Some of them seem to come from purgatory. They're gloomy. They have to work out some, some problem. And some of them probably come from hell. They want to deceive you and tempt you. But this seems clearly to have been a, a heavenly spirit. You said that our enemies are not really humans. So what does that mean for our relations with others that we consider enemies or we consider under devil's persuasion, such as aggressive secularists or Islamic terrorists? They're victims. Uh, we have to deliver them. They are our brothers and sisters. 
we're both fighting the same enemy, but they don't know it. They think they're fighting us. We know they're not. When the brothers and sisters in a family fight, they're still in the family. They can't stop that. And we are all children of God. God created us all as one human family and loves us all, even the worst sinner. Even, even Judas Iscariot, Jesus called him friend just before he betrayed him the last time. So we have to take that same attitude. You are not our enemy. Evil spirits are our enemy. And our own sins are our own enemies. They're our own worst enemies because they're the, uh, the spies that the devil presents, uh, that sneaks into our hearts. Thank you very much, Dr. Crave, for your time tonight. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.